Welcome everyone to the third episode of our podcast, the Nobel Peace Prize. I'm here today with Daniel Hogan, who's a wonderful conductor and uh, accompanist and lots of things from Watford. Uh, Dan's also a, a real ABBA enthusiast and can even occasionally be seen dressing the part as well. <laughs> <laughs> Only on special occasions. <laughs> I'm, I'm not in ABBA suit right now. I am with Ben Maloney, who is often described as the Angel of the North, but he is also a wonderful keyboard player specialising in early music. But of course, Barbershop, Scott Joplin, you know, you name it, Ben is extremely talented at it. We are very happy to be here today. <laughs> I know it's rubbish, isn't it? We are very happy to be here today with the wonderful Robert Bates, who is a fantastic violinist who both Ben and I know from the University of York, where we worked together many a time. And now he is studying for a master's at the Royal Northern College of Music. And he has many musical enthusiasms, but <laughs> I also want to point out that he has impeccable facial hair and a fantastic Santa shirt today. The word today is pompous. Right? Yes, and we, we need to emphasize this word is no reflection on Robert at all. <laughs> no reflection on his character. No reflection. Oh. I was assured that. Yes, I, I had to specify it when I was sending Robert. It was in the contract. Yeah. <laughs> I'd also like to say that my personal music choices are a lot more diverse than the things I've chosen. And um, the first one I picked is, I think, you know, it's obviously the greatest composer in the world. You know, when we think of, of great classical music, we think, you know, of of Beethoven and Bach. Well, it's neither of those. It is, of course, uh, Sir Arthur Sullivan. And, uh, really, I could have picked any of his works, especially the um, collaborations with uh, W.S. Gilbert. Of course. There are pompous characters in every single of their operas, mainly because they are reflections upon English society, and England has a lot of pompous people in it. <laughs> no, that is true. That's true. You're looking at two of them, Robert. Uh, well, well, it could be three. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I really could have picked any any of them. Uh, there's uh, Sir Joseph Porter in HMS Pinafore, the Admiral. Um, there's Robin in uh, Rudigal. All of the the Duke in the Gondoliers. These are all really pompous people and they all sing songs about how little they know or how much they think they know and really they don't really know anything. Um, but the song or the number I chose is from arguably um, Sullivan's masterpiece, uh, which is the Mikado. It was uh, described as his, his masterpiece during his lifetime and he hated that fact. Uh, he wanted to write grand opera and instead he wrote mm, cheap comic opera. Operetta, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And uh, I chose this one because it's not sung by one pompous character, it's sung by three pompous characters. Robert. So if we're all warmed up, <laughs> it's called I Am So Proud, and it's sung by Coco, who is the Lord High Executioner. Um, it's sung by, uh, what are their names? Coco and... Uh, Pish Tush, who is just a nobleman, and then the third one, who is has every single job in the government apart from Lord High Executioner. 
you know, he's the leader of the opposition and the leader of the government. He's the treasurer and the shadow, all this and everything. And basically, uh, Coco is trying to find someone who they can execute because he has to ex execute someone. Um, Coco was given the job as Lord High Executioner because he himself was on death row, sentenced to death. And the town thought they'd give him the role of Lord High Executioner because he couldn't cut off anyone else's head until he's cut his own off. And he wasn't very likely to do that. So they have to find someone's head to cut off. And basically in this song, they're all just arguing about how they'd love to have their heads cut off, but they're really too important um, <laughs> to have their heads cut off, really. And yeah, that, that's pretty much it. They're really pompous characters. And also they don't do anything really in the opera. You know, Coco, the executioner. They're pointless characters then. They're not pointless characters. They're main characters, but they don't, do anything, they don't do their jobs. Coco doesn't execute anyone. Um, right. The government man just takes bribes and doesn't actually do anything. And then Pish Tush, the nobleman, does absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> and it also um, made the phrase short, sharp, shock. It popularized that phrase. And uh, recently, if anything, with Brexit and COVID, that phrase has come up on the news many times. Oh. I'm sure my family are sick to death of me going, the Mikado popularised that phrase. <laughs> oh, that is such a good fact. It is also the worst nightmare for, with, for someone with a lift. So what was it again? Short, sharp, shock. Short, short, shut. To sit, to sit in solemn silence in a dull, dark dock in a pestilential prison with a lifelong lock, awaiting the sensation of a short, sharp shock from a cheap and chippy chapper on a big black block. <laughs> it's like reading oh, isn't it? <laughs> In this record, it's much, much faster. Right. Well, I was impressed with that. Patter song. <laughs> Do you know where the term patter song comes from? I don't know where the term comes from. From uh, pater, as in pater noster, the Latin, our father, because when monks, they, 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 they had a habit of when reading out the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, blah, blah, blah. They would do it as fast as possible just to get through <laughs> it quickly. So they were trained to do this really fast speaking, which became known as patter song when they were... Doing... That's a brilliant fact. He also wrote a ch cello concerto, right? Just gonna he, say, wrote, yeah. he wrote a which cello. It's really actually quite a good piece, I think. Yeah. Except the concerto itself, as in the score, was lost burnt wasn't it in a fire or something yeah along with quite a lot of its other scores but the person who originally played it could apparently remembered it so they copied out the whole piece again and yeah. so they kind of wrote it down from memory and then it was reconstructed around what the conductor remembered so it's not really his oh. cello but Which it's, one it's a pale imitation of the yeah. original it wasn't Sir Charles Macareth was it Macareth? yeah it was it was yeah, yeah. It's funny, Sir Charles Macarius was kind of the world authority on like Janacek and all like Czech music and Gilbert and Sullivan. Like, what a brilliant combination well, that I is. Think, I think it goes to show how important Sullivan is as a composer. Yeah. Mm, to the we English all, repertoire. Absolutely. We all kind of brush him aside as writing, I don't know, cheap music that we all kind of know and everyone knows our three little mates from school or the major general song. But if you actually have a look at some of his music, it's very, you know, detailed and much harder than you'd expect. 
Um, in the gondoliers, he puts like three time against two time just on top of each other. So, you know, all these cross rhythms. Mm. And then I think in Pirates, he does the same thing, but, you know, using um, key signatures that are like, you know, a third apart or something. It's just crazy. Gosh. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, Pirates of Penzance. Oh, it's nothing special. But it really, and also the other thing is, which a lot of people don't realize, is they're very hard to play. As someone who has played, you know, in just a few of them, they are very difficult to play in. Not only because they're written for singers, so they've got ridiculous key signatures of like 18 flats or whatever, uh, but a lot of the time I, uh, okay, sometimes I use bits of them to warm up with because they're almost like studies. Yeah. Just kind of repetitive patterns, but not they don't sit comfortably under the fingers because they were just written at a piano. Even it makes a lot of sense when you look at the score, everything slots together so nicely. It just, I could listen to, you know, if I was on Desert Island Discs, I could be cast away with that quite happily and just listen to the Mikado on repeat forever. And it's not even one of those pieces, you know, where people say, oh, I get something new from it each time. In some senses, I almost don't. And that's why I enjoy it because it's so perfect and lovely. It's you like, you know, a what to expect. Big, big yeah. Yeah. It all just slots in very nicely. Probably a bit touchy area. Um, but the, the thing about the Mikado, which I think really works, is the fact that it is set in kind of feudal Japan, um, which uh, people can be quite uh, touchy about because, you know, it can be seen as almost cultural appropriation or this. Uh, but the really good thing about it is that you can put it in any setting because mm. essentially it is a satirical swipe on English culture and English people. You know, um, the English National Opera do it in like a 1920s English seaside hotel, and it worked perfectly in any setting. <laughs> well, there's a really good story that in, I think it's 1907, uh, the Japanese Crown Prince, it's almost like a, a Gilbert and Sullivan plot in itself. Uh, the Japanese Crown Prince was coming on a visit to the UK and um, the government banned the Mikado for the amount of time that the Japanese prince was staying here, just in case he would happen to catch even a tiny glimpse <laughs> and would be just so offended and they'd declare war on Britain or something. Okay. That's brilliant. And uh, at the end of his visit, he said, well, it's a pity because I really, I really wanted to go and see it. I object, and so, although I wish to go, and greatly pine to brightly shine and take the line of a hero, fight with grief for nine, I must decline. And go and show both friend and foe how much you dare, I'm quite aware it's all a fair, yet I declare I take to a share, but I don't much care. I must I take to a share, but I don't care. I object to a share, but I don't care. I object to a share, but I don't care. I object to a share, but I don't care. I object to a
that Sullivan's music was satirizing a great opera. Mm. And there's a scene in the sorcerer, the incantation scene, um, where, you know, the sorcerer is summoning up uh, the ghouls and the demons and all this. And that was a, essentially a spoof of uh, Weber's Freischutz. Right. Yeah, yeah. Freischutz, yeah. Around coming to London at the time. And so everyone would have gone, <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> he's taking the piss out of Weber. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, it's all cultural uh, context. There's a bit in the Mikado, which is very Rossi. In fact, I think the end of that is quite Rossini-like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Where I think it's clarinet is kind of offset with the voices by like you know a quaver and that's just so it screams Rossini and then there's a lot I think in Patience um, which is extremely Verdi mm -hmm. I think it's uh, the number is Liszt Reginald and it's if you if it was sung in Italian you go oh that's that's Verdi it's obvious mm. um, so but yeah of many different styles and he other... is yeah in fact, there's a bit in Pirates of Penzance where there, it's an unaccompanied chorus. And I think that's quite Mozart-like. Yeah, I know the bit you mean, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah towards the end, isn't it? Hail Poetry. Hail yeah. Poetry. That bit. Mm. Oh, yeah, we were in that together, weren't we? Yeah, that's the bit which, uh, well, <laughs> never went right in the show. <laughs> <laughs> but I could hear that it was supposed to sound good. The singers all kind of got slightly out with each other. <laughs> and instead of ending on a lovely warm major chord, it would just be like a kind of cluster. Oh, <laughs> well, I don't know if it was the conductor out with the chorus or the chorus out with the conductor, but it was probably way. both. Yeah, I think so. Right. Okay. So I am hoping to play up to Robert's interests a little bit, and I thought of something more on the kind of operetta side of things, side of the spectrum. Um, but when we were set to this uh, word, pompous, I immediately started thinking of renowned literary figures and was instantly drawn to Shakespeare's gaudy knight, Sir John Falstaff, Falstaff, however you would like to say it, whose escapades have been depicted in so many operas, including, including operas by Salieri, Verdi, and even Vaughan Verdi. Williams. But it's not the one I'm going to talk about today, sadly. I am going to talk about The Merry Wives of Windsor by Otto Nikolai, um, who, you know, he died, I think he was in his late 30s. So I, I, think, I think it was something like he died literally two or three weeks after the pre premiere of this opera or something. So sadly, we don't know too much about his, well, his life or what he could have been because he just died too too early. But this is... A wonderful piece. In yeah. previous plays by Shakespeare, Falstaff was presented as a very, you know, gallant, noble, impressive knight. But in The Merry Wives of Windsor, he is basically portrayed as uh, very much the fool with comic pomposity. And yeah, it, it very much lends himself nicely to the opera buffa style of Nikolai's score. So basically, the plot revolves around this thwarted, farcical effort to seduce two married women, basically to gain access to their husband's wealth. So Falstaff tries to woo both of these women by sending identical love letters to each of them. And basically neither of them have any interest in the aging, overweight Falstaff, shall we say. Who, um, and they decide to pursue revenge against his indecent assumptions towards both of them by pretending to respond favorably to his advances. 
this basically leaves, leads to a lot of pranks against Falstaff, including making him hide in a laundry basket full of filthy clothes, which is then dumped in the river with Falstaff still inside. I'm going to play you an extract from the overture, which I feel particularly captures the essence of Falstaff's character, because you get the fun of the opera, the opera buffer, um, demonstrating the pomposity of the man with the beefy trombones doubling the bass line and certainly a menacing element to the melody as well. But in between, it's contrasted with a melody that couldn't be more charming or flirtatious, kind of demonstrating the sleaziness of the character's true intentions. Because you can really see that he sees himself as a catch and the definition of charm itself. But it's the pompous music around it that shows his true character. I know the overture. Yeah, that's, I'm going to play an extract from that now. But this is one of the first pieces that got me into classical music when I was you know, seven or eight years old. So love it very much. That's a shame. That's a shame. <laughs> what a shame that I was born into the classical music world, Benjamin. Yeah. There we go. I think music oh, like that, it shows both sides of the character. It shows the pompous side, but it also shows, the, I mean, the charming side. And um, it kind of presents the pompous side to be quite lovable as well, which is what I love about the character of Falstaff, especially in a piece like this. And I think Verdi certainly does that as well. So there we go. Lovable pomposity is what I what? have presented for you today. I'm going to play you something from Henry Purcell's King Arthur. Ah, which we all uh, know and love as one of the great early English operas, or uh, semi-operas anyway. So it was um, written around 1691 um, with, in conjunction with John Dryden, who wrote the libretto. He's the poet laureate, first poet laureate. Great guy. Oh, great John guy. <laughs> yeah, he was a great guy. In fact, he wrote an elegy on the death of Purcell. Uh, Purcell. Yeah. Which uh, is how we know it was pronounced Purcell because the, the, um, the yeah the the rhythmic scheme of the um, poem. Um, although trivia. I'm sure yeah. people probably said Purcell because you know we're talking about the uh, Restoration period here when English people are obsessed with everything French. So they, I'm sure some people said Purcell, but um, anyway, Monsieur Purcell. Um, and so uh, King Arthur obviously based around the battles between the Britons and the Saxons, uh, so the Celtic Britons and then the um, the Saxon invaders and King Arthur um, 
of course, on the side of the Britons and the story is about him rescuing his uh, Emmeline, who was his uh, fiancée, um, the Cornish princess, which is why it's we're all in the southwest. Everything's very west country. Who are? Indeed, yes. And that links very much into the piece that I'm about to play you. Um, so this is a, a semi-opera. The main characters speak um, spoken um, dialogue and act and then... The side characters, especially the weird supernatural ones like the fairies and sprites that you always get in personal operas, do the singing. Um, and this is the one song, actually, which... Oh, and the gods, of course, you know, when they sing about Woden and Thor and Valhalla and all of that stuff, you get the singing. Uh, this is the one song that is sung by a normal person um, in the opera, and it's sung right towards the end of the last act, which I think is the fifth act. I think there are five. Gosh, that's long. Um, yeah. yeah, it's long, actually. And <laughs> funnily enough, people only do it um, without the spoken side of it. Now, if you have the spoken parts, it's really long. Um, so this is a song sung by Comus, who is the... Um, and he, who's kind of the ringleader of the, of the farmers at the end. Um, and you can imagine for me, um, so I took pompous rather than sort of pomp as in splendor and richness and all of that. I took it to mean kind of what you did in the, in the sense of the character, you know, pompous, arrogant, kind of loud and thinking that their people want to listen to them more than they actually do. Um, <laughs> uh, and so you can just ha you have an image here, um, for me of just this guy sort of, whacking his cap on, downing a bottle of ale and jumping up on the haystacks and just starting to um, starting to sing. So at, at the time, harvesting, obviously done by hand. They didn't have tractors back then. Um, at the end of the harvest, um, there was a tradition that all of the farmers would get up, stand on the hay bales and shout the neck uh, as loud as possible. I don't know where that comes from. Um, and apparently you, people would say that the sound was haunting and you could hear it um, for miles or whatever. So I think that's what this um, song is trying to conjure up. Uh, and also, traditionally, um, the parson, so the member, the representative of the church, would collect a tenth of the harvest um, as a contribution to the church. Uh, and obviously, this song is a reflection of the uh, the popular attitudes to that at the time, shall we say. Oh, I 
Possibly tell us which one you think should win today. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I really enjoyed uh, Dan's a lot more. Fair enough. Thank you, Robert. I, uh, yeah, I think yeah, choice is a piece I really enjoy, a genre that I really enjoy, and um, yeah, I'm just not too keen on Purcell. I didn't think it spoke much about pomposity as much as you know, Merry Wives of Windsor. Fair enough. Uh, yes. Okay. So first question is, what's your what? least favourite instrument? My least favourite instrument? Yeah. Um, probably my own, the violin, because I play it. Because <laughs> oh. <laughs> the amount of pain it gives you. Yeah. I also don't think, even though that I play it, I don't think the violin is a very good solo instrument for oh, like okay. concertos and stuff, which is a very unpopular opinion, but I really don't think it's that great. Sometimes it can just be a bit feeble compared to the rest of the orchestra. Right. My question is, what is the worst concert you have ever played in? The worst concert I've ever played in? Yeah. There was one concert I remember from youth orchestra um, where the conductor stopped the piece halfway through by shouting, Stop! (laughs) Um, I think it was... I think it was Gershwin's American in Paris. Brilliant. And it was just going so badly. (laughs) Um, but the worst concert I've ever watched. Mm-hmm. Well, there's two worst concerts. Oh no, the worst concert I've ever been in. Uh, I don't remember if you were in it or not. Um, but it was the University of York Baroque Ensemble concert. Oh, that was Ted. definitely the worst I've ever seen. Yeah. When we, we were doing um, Coronation we Purcell in that, I think. By Blow and Purcell. Yeah. And uh, the organist was not in the right place. The choir right were under rehearsed. And we had to cut one of the pieces we were doing on the morning of the concert. Oh, dear. And the only people who really rehearsed were us poor instrumentalists, I thought. Robert, what's your go-to party drink? Drink? Mm. Um, Alcoholic. The only drink drink I ever drink is Pims. Oh, Ah, you classy. That's classy, man. I like it. It's summer all round for you, isn't it? Yeah, that's the only drink I ever drink is Pims and lemonade. 
Oh, lovely, lovely, Jeffrey. <laughs> um, <laughs> which historical event would you most like to have been present for? Um, well, today was the premiere of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Mm. Um, but I think I would definitely like to go, I hate to say this, but I'd definitely like to go to the first night of the Mikado. Definitely. <laughs> and that would be fantastic. And like, if I could be anybody, I'd love to be Sir Arthur Sullivan conducting it. If you could rename yourself, first name, what would you be called? Yeah, I think Robert's fine. It's never caused me any problems. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Manchester or York? York, definitely. I hate Manchester. 100%. <laughs> and I hate living there. Robert, describe yourself in one word. One word? Um, pompous? No. <laughs> uh, opinionated. You're allowed to say something positive, by the way. Opinionated could be positive. Entertaining. I think I'm quite entertaining. Good. Absolutely. That's true. I think that's very true. And now one musician, dead or alive, that everyone should be raving about. Well, isn't currently, but people should rave more about Sullivan's other works. I think mm. um, his early works, uh, as you know, I've talked about before. His early works are basic were described as you know new Mendelssohn's, and um, yeah, his works are fantastic, but they're overshadowed by his more popular works. Mm. Uh, but there are a lot of other Savoy opera composers. Um, none of whom I can pronounce the names of. Um, like, you know, the Alfred Kellier, Sellier, who, who was the one who arranged most of the overtures to the Gilbert and Sullivan operas. Right. And, you know, they wrote a few operas and things. And I often find, you know, when I trawl through books on the internet, I go, wow, this one sounds really interesting and the music looks really interesting, but there's never any recordings of them. Mm. And I think it would be amazing oh, to pick one musician. I think it'd be amazing if, you know, the genre of English Savoy light opera was being revived a bit more. Well, I think that's a wonderful sentiment to finish that podcast on. Thank you ever so much, Robert Bates. It's been it's so been wonderful lovely. to talk to you this evening. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining A pleasure. So we'll see you all again next week when we'll be joined by Rosie Spinks and we'll be talking about being on top of the world. So see you all later first name what would you be called if i could <laughs> what kind of questions are these brilliant questions that's what uh, they are um we have a new neighbor next door who uh, is a doctor and when we first introduced ourselves i mumbled my name i said oh i'm robert and he thought i was called rommel as are you in gonna go with that then the german jet field marshal which i think is a pretty fun name <laughs>